Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 2nd, 2013. This is episode 1122 of the Survival Podcast. We're going to be talking about examining the future role of the militia in modern society and reconstituting a civilian militia in the country. Um, I'm going to do that in a discussion with a guy named Ryan Rokan of the Gunrunner Podcast, this guy I really like. Um, you're going to hear a bit of a debate, and that means before I introduce him, I'm going to explain why that debate happened and uh, some other details to make sure that Ryan's side is fully heard because we kind of did get bogged down on a couple of technicalities. To, to me, um, well, they were worth getting bogged down over. In fact, I even broke a rule. Uh, generally, I'll have guests on, and sometimes guests will say things I don't agree with, and I just won't even say anything in opposition to it. I'll just say, okay, that's, that's your view. Let's talk about something else and move it through because I bring guests on to be heard. In this case, the disagreement was over the entire concept of what the subject was to where it made it pretty impossible to go forward because I'm talking about blue and he's talking about orange. I'll explain that more in a bit. Before I do, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is um, Safe Castle Royal, who I consider the original survival podcast sponsor. I call them that because they were the first people that stepped up and said, Jack, we want to sponsor the show. And I said at that time, gee, Vic, um, Vic Rontala runs the thing over there. I don't want your money. And he said, really? Why not? I said, because I don't have enough of an audience to like get you a return of investment. So I, I, I don't want to do this yet. And I think that kind of took him back a bit. I said, just give me a few more months. And let me put together an official program to do this with. And the entire vetting process for sponsors, listener, ad council, all of that stuff uh, came out of figuring out how do we do this? How do we take on a first sponsor? And uh, since that day, which was about six months in, and we're heading for five years, so we're talking about four and a half years now, Vic has been a loyal sponsor of this show. He's done a lot for the audience. He's always taken care of everybody out there. Uh, and he gives away his premium uh, discount membership, which is a $49 product, for free to all members of the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade, which basically means that one benefit that Vic provides alone makes your first year of MSB cost a dollar. And, boy, you make a profit if you get the service discount on top of it. Safecastle has everything you could want for your prepping needs, uh, long-term storage food, uh, tactical stuff, all kinds of things. Check them out today, safecastle.com. And uh, the other thing is when you're there, uh, check out their sister site. They have a link there where you can see where they make hardened shelters, especially if you live in uh, tornado country, folks. It might be something to consider. Check them out today. Again, safecastle.com. Another way you can get to their website. Maybe easier to remember Prepared.pro, prepared.pro. Uh, both of those will lead you to Safe Castle Rolls website. Next up today is Survival Gear Bags. I'm really excited about the fact that I have Survival Gear Bags as a sponsor today because they're literally a company that was created out of the community of the Survival Podcast. Kelly John Doe was in the fulfillment business, what he did for a living. So when he found the Survival Podcast and kind of got hooked up with our community, he uh, he put together some group buys for the community and said, hey, you know what, maybe I can make a living at this. And out of that idea, Survival Gear Bags was created. They have some of the best gear and the best bags to put that gear in you will find. SOE Tactical Gear, uh, they have the new... Uh, uh, the new bag that I have that I'm really, really in love with, the Hazard 4 Messenger of Doom bag, and I love that bag because of how well it kits up with a Keltec Sub 2000, uh, which is one of my favorite uh, small foldable carbines. If you've ever seen one, you'll know why. 
they've got so many cool uh cool bags and cool cool gear setups out there. You just really need to uh to check into them and uh Kelly again does a great job of making sure he takes care of the audience. If he didn't folks, he wouldn't also be running the uh the new survival podcast gear shop, which is a nice segue to that. Check out tspgear.com, man. We've got some cool stuff. We've got some shirts in there now that if you want to uh, share the message of preparedness, if you just have friends that like to wear cool-looking T-shirts, these are shirts you could get them, give them to them as a gift, and they'd love. Consider that as a, uh, a low-ball way, not a low-ball, what do you call it, a, a low-impact method of sharing the message of preparedness, maybe giving away some of our uh, the coffee press mug, is something any coffee drinker would love. There's some cool stuff there. Again, TSP Gear. Dot com. Uh, next up, do want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. Uh, you join the Member Support Brigade. It costs you about 18.3 cents an episode to support the show. That's about 50 bucks a year. Uh, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, you get a discount. Just email me with the service discount in the subject line. And uh, tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. And I'll respond back to you and uh, give you some... Uh, give you a, a discount code that will help you save even more money. Please do that before, not after you join. Uh, as far as the discounts that you get once you're a member, there's about 40 different companies now that provide great discounts uh, to all members of the Member Support Brigade. So good that they will pay for your membership many times over if you're already buying a little bit of gear here and there throughout the year for preparedness, self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and homesteading. Uh, everything from seeds to tactical to practical and everything in between. Uh, even uh, herbal supplements. We have just about everything. I'm about to get you guys a discount. I got to talk to that guy that, that sent me the email uh, from a co company that does coffee. Um, Barry's Starbucks. Best coffee I've ever drank in my life. Even out of my Mr. Coffee coffee maker. And I'm not going to tell you who it is until I get the discount code set up with them. But I was in an email exchange with them last week. We're supposed to get you guys a 10% discount on that. So I'm trying to expand it to just not just things that are for preparedness, but anything you might use in your daily life especially really premium things, and uh, get you a significant enough discount that, uh, you know, if you buy a few things here and there, that discount pays for itself. That's my goal. I figure if I give you a discount program that, that's profitable, you'll stay a member for life. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show. So let me explain to you what happened here, guys, and I also want to let you know about where Ryan has almost two hours of content that expands on this so his full side of the story can be heard because I want it to be heard. I'm not... You know, I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm saying we disagree. And those are two very, very different things. So when I got Ryan's uh, paper, I've been trying to get Stuart Rhodes back on, and we're just having trouble syncing up for some reason, uh, to talk about reconstituting militias. And I know Ryan from the Gunrunner podcast. I don't listen to it a lot. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, honestly, but I have from time to time. He's very good at what he does, and I like what he has to say. So when I saw that he had an initiative to reconstitute the militias, I said, let's great. Let's get him all. Let's talk about that. And I thought we would, you know, not agree on everything, but we'd be in sync at least on what a militia was. Not on its role. Uh, that too, I guess, even you'll hear in this. But, but what is a militia? What, how do you create one? How do you found one? What, what, what is a militia? And, uh, so I was excited about it. Now I didn't go read his initiative or anything, which I should have, but you know, I have this thing called a business and a life and I don't go into all of the information. In fact, I usually prefer to not know everything a guest is going to say and not know everything about where a guest is coming from because that lets my interview be a process of discovery for myself along with the audience instead of me basically knowing the words of the of the person I'm interviewing to the point where I could have just basically done the show and said, hey, so-and-so says. Um, 
So sometimes that works out. Usually it does. I'd say 99% of the time. And every once in a while, we end up in a place where we're not on the same sheet of music. And that's why I came up with the guest survey form. That's why when you guys say, you should go get so-and-so to be on the show, I'm like, go tell them you think they should be on the show, and go tell them to fill out the form. And it's also why when I get a form from a prospective guest, when it says, please give us five questions you'd like us to ask you, um, I say no. Or they, and they don't, they don't do it. I'm sorry. And they don't do it. So it's just like, like, I've gotten guest surveys from people that say, anything you want to ask about, blah, whatever the thing, subject is, I'm open to anything. And I delete those. I throw them away because now I can't vet you as a guest. So usually that works. And that, that short up the 1% where we were out of sync with a guest. That worked until now. Because the questions that I have in front of me would lead me to believe that we're going to talk about exactly what I think we're going to talk about, what you're about to hear. Again, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. I don't think, I don't want you to think I don't like Ryan. I don't want you to think I'm saying he's wrong. I just think that we disagree about what is a militia and how you form a militia. Let me explain to you my view of what a militia is. A militia is a group of citizens that are armed with the sole purpose of the defense of their local community and the republic at large if necessary. It is served in 100% voluntary status. You can pass, even where there have been compulsory militia laws in this country, it was basically defining people who absolutely were in the militia, males 18 to 45 that are able-bodied. Additionally, in those laws, it basically said anybody else that says they are is. And that made the 18 to 45-year-old male subject to being called in, but it was never forcibly done. The only time we ever forcibly made anybody hold a rifle and defend this country, those people were not forced into militias. They were forced into some level of being part of the federal troops under a draft. So if you look at, for instance, the Union drafted a lot of soldiers during the Civil War, or as I like to call it more accurately, the War Between the States, and when they did that, they did not draft them into the Massachusetts militia. They drafted them into the Union regulars. And the militia and the regulars fought side by side on both sides of the line, right? But the draft, the actual where you're going to go or go to jail, was always with federalized troops. A militia was voluntary. Another hallmark of a militia is in many instances, and in many militias that have been formed now privately uh, in modern times, officers and NCOs, Uh, people may uh, get a certain level of status by being there for a while, but when it came to really command structure, generally speaking, instead of a superior officer, a colonel saying, I'm going to make this lieutenant, you know, this first lieutenant into a captain, the, the members of the militia themselves said, now we need a captain. So the militia themselves would vote their captain in. And you might think that might not work because, well, it's a popularity contest. But it doesn't work that way when a militia is designed to actually stare down uh, at a real threat. Men who are willing to go into a threat for no pay uh, and, and do it solely for the protection of their family, their community, and their friends don't want somebody leading them who they just like. They want somebody leading them who they trust. And it was actually, and once that person was put in command, you know, it wasn't like we could hold a vote in the middle of a firefight. If there was going to be a change, that was done in a, you know, that guy's in command, just like any other military unit. But members of a militia also had a right to say, you know what, I'm done. 
I've I, I followed this mission as far as I'm willing to go, not in the middle of a firefight, but once that, once that, and you know, if you've been through it and it's over and there's, let's say, a quell, a quiet could leave. And they wouldn't face a firing squad the way the military might because it's voluntary service. A member of a militia was not blessed as a member of a militia. Nobody in the state or even the local community gave them any specific authority because they weren't acting with any authority that's any different than any other member of the republic, any other citizen of the republic. In other words, if somebody's breaking into your home right now and you live across the street from me, okay, and I think that your life is in danger, not just your property... I do not need a badge, I do not need authority, I do not need a blessing to intervene in the defense of your life. Okay? And that, that would be part of a militia's role, including on a much more large scale, if we get into a civil breakdown, and we've got roving mobs of people, the military is only going to be able to do so much, and if you've got a group of looters killing and burning houses and raping people, and a group of citizens get together and use force to put a stop to it, it's completely constitutional and completely legal. It's the same thing as if somebody invaded this country, and don't think that can't happen, because it can, and we ended up in a shooting war, and, and you end up with a militia supporting our troops. Militias are not anti-government, but they have very limited government control, especially federal government control. A militia should answer to somebody in government at the county level. There is no doubt about that. I think the sheriff is perfect. I think that's where Ryan and I will agree in this discussion you're going to hear. Uh, but I think they do that by voluntary association. Sir, tell us what you need, and we'll give it to you. But if that sheriff ends up being corrupt, and we end up in a civil breakdown, and that sheriff ends up running, because he could, don't think it can't happen, the sheriff himself especially in some places, could end up basically running a gang of thugs, then it's up to that militia to stand apart and say, no, not on our watch. A militia is not a disaster response team, though they might aid in, in disaster response. To me, a militia is a group of citizens who say, there are certain things we will not allow to happen in our community, and if the perpetrator is a criminal, we will stand against them. If the perpetrator is a foreign power, we will stand against them. And if the perpetrator is our own government, we will stand against it. That doesn't mean we're opposed to government. It means we're imposed to government violating its own contract with its people, which is the Constitution of the United States of America and the Constitution of the state in which the militia resides. Now that, to me, is a militia. Now, I might be wrong. That might not, and maybe there's no place in the political correct society that we're in today for that to be done in a very organized, high visibility uh, level. Maybe militias that are going to be like that need to remain like many of them that are out there in states like Missouri, Texas, and Michigan right now. And I know that there's some fools out there, and Ryan's going to mention them, but I'm not letting a fool stop me from doing what I'm supposed to do the right way. So just because, and, and you know, my belief is that just because the media sensationalizes this crap, okay, doesn't mean that that if we do it in a different way and we give people a badge, that they're gonna they're gonna do it any less. This is what the media does. It is time for us when it comes to 
preparedness, when it comes to self-sufficiency, when it comes to a militia, when it comes to being a gun owner, to stop giving a damn what the media says. Because let me tell you something about the media. The media ain't going to do a damn thing differently no matter what you do because the media is opposed to freedom, liberty, self-sufficiency, independence, and the Constitution of the United States of America. So I am not going to pander to the media. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it ever again. I have to tell you guys about three to four times a month minimum, I tell somebody in the media to stick their head up their fourth point of contact and blow and see if it makes their eyes pop out of their head because I won't even talk to them. If you have an agenda counter to liberty and freedom, I'm not going to give you any ammunition. And no matter how spot on I am, no matter how accurate I am, no matter how correct I am, no matter how to the point of law I am, no matter how legal I am, no matter how good my intentions are, these people will twist, turn, and crap on them and make me look as crazy as don't make some of these other people look. Now, are there people out there in the survival movement, in the self-sufficiency movement, in the homestead movement, and in the pro-Second Amendment movement who are flipping nuts? Yes, there are about 2% of us. And guess what? In any segment of society, about 2% of people are flipping nuts. And in any segment of society, probably about close to 10% are people with twisted, demented minds that will take advantage of their fellow man. So we got 90% that are sane, okay? We got 98% that are sane. We got 2% that are insane. That means we also have 2% that are criminally insane and 8% that are criminal. And that's the basic dynamic in society today. It really is. And that's what you see happen when systems fail and people start mobbing and looting. And there's about another 10%, which it takes to about 80% that will stand morally correct in any in every way that they can, but there's another 10% that once the first 10% start getting away with it, they'll, they'll fall in with them. And that's the mob effect. So I'm not worried about the 2% or the 10% in my group of society because every other group has a 2% and a 10% group too. It's just the dynamic of humanity. And I'm not going to try to make nice with the media. I'm really not. We're going to do what we're going to do in this community which is be solid citizens, be solid Americans. And when we do have to speak to media, we're just going to speak it blunt, direct, to the point, and clear, and short enough that there's no opportunity to cut something out and put two pieces back together to change the meaning of what you say. Because that never happens, does it, Trayvon Martin? You guys remember Trayvon Martin? Trayvon Martin, you remember the audio that was at ABC or CBS, one of the major networks played, and they took about 30 seconds of the 911 conversation out. They just took it out, and they played it. So George Zimmerman says, he looks like he's up to no good. He looks black. They took 30 They took the part where the 911 operator said, can you please describe the individual to us, sir? And he said, he's about this tall, this way, and he looks black. And they took that out. They took that out and they played it. If they'll do that, they'll do it to every single person. They'll do it whether you're working with somebody on Discovery or Nat Geo. And they say, we just want to do a reality show that really is reality. They're all full of crap. And trying to make the militia politically acceptable by giving a militiaman a badge 
I just think it's a mistake. I said all that so that you'll know where I'm coming from and what you're about to hear. And I don't want you to dismiss Ryan's points. I actually want you to take Ryan's points in, and I'd actually like this audience to get in touch with him very, very politely and hear what he has to say. I'd also like you, if you could take the time, to listen to his follow-up podcast on this and hear everything he has to say. I haven't even heard it all yet, but I know where he's coming from. And maybe what he's doing is a great initiative. And maybe it can be a stepping stone to restoring a militia and having more people in an official capacity that can operate in conjunction with a militia. But a militiaman doesn't have to go through a 27-page application or even a 12-page application to be a militiaman. If you're not a felon and you're not disbarred from from carrying arms and you want to serve and you're willing to work with the group that's established where you are within the command structure, and if that command structure is noble, and if that command structure is 100% loyal to the Constitution of your state, your local ordinances, and the Constitution of the United States of America, and you say you're a militiaman, then by God you're a militiaman. And that's what our founders thought. And that's where I'm coming from. And with that, in spite of everything I just said, Let's go ahead and we're going to have a great conversation here and maybe we can learn to have a debate when two sides have a different view of how to accomplish the same goal and be respectful of each other because I think in spite of the fact that we disagreed on some things, that's exactly what happened here. And with that, hey Ryan, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you very much for having me on, Jack. I, it, it's great to be here. I've been a fan of the show for about three years and... <laughs> Talking to the godfather of podcasting is awesome. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been called that before, but uh, okay, I'll accept the title at least for this episode. Anyway, I've got you on to talk about um, constitutional militias. And, and what I'd kind of like to lead off is what, not just in this country, but what historically has been the role of a militia? Well, the role of the militia historically has been the people being able to provide some form of protection for their county. And uh, I'm using county in a very broad sense as what townships or, or those types of areas would have been in, say, the Middle Ages. A, 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 a small area of local control. Exactly. Parish, so, province, what have you. Yes, not necessarily a state. Usually these were what we think of a state today. This is usually something that's going to be a lot Smaller, it's going to be a lot easier to get a message out. You're going to be able to put somebody on horseback. They're going to be able to ride around, get the word out relatively quickly. And the the word that the, militia is a word that's kind of become a dirty word, especially within the gun community in the last couple of years. The word that's actually a lot closer that'll help people get a, a little bit better beat on this is posse. When you think of okay. the sheriff going out and rounding up a posse because you know they got some varmints that came into town and they got to deal with it. Those are, that's the type of situation that we're more talking about when we talk about a militia. And that's more the, the visual that helps with this. So you've got a sheriff, you've got a law enforcement official. Uh, back in the old days, you had a knight or a, uh, a duke that had his manor. So he would go out and round these guys up, and everybody had some form of arm. Uh, the biggest exception when we talk about this is going to be the Japanese states, some of the Mongol states where it was illegal for people to own arms. And so they developed these fighting styles that were based around everyday implements. So if you were to go to like 
Okinawa. Okinawa is where uh, there's a form of karate that uh, originated there, and instead of using things like katanas and nunchucks, they would use sickles. So they would have a a set of handheld sickles, and the way they trained to do it is they would have a dance that would incorporate drums. So when you're striking the drum, you're actually training to strike somebody with a sickle. They, they developed their own way of establishing a militia and being able to protect themselves from their overlords. At the same time, they're training to protect their community in case something happens. Yeah, because even if they were you know, okay with the Shogun of the Day or whatever, right? that doesn't mean that some, just call them bandits from a, another community, might not come in and decide, yeah, you don't, won't be needing all that rice today, and hence the, the rice flail becomes the nunchaku. Exactly. So... There's this theme that has gone through human history where we've established a community and we've wanted to be able to protect it, and we've wanted to organize it in some way. This continues until we get to the early part of the 20th century, and we'll kind of rotate back to that. But the states themselves had these individual militias, and everybody was a part of it. And it wasn't just that the individual militiaman owned his own musket, had his own bayonet, they also had private owners of cannon. So when you come up to some of these rebellions in the Civil War, the cannon they're using is owned by private parties. And we've got these folks that are in Congress right now that think a 30-round magazine is a little <laughs> dangerous to have. You had people with their own cannon. <laughs> yeah, at the time when a cannon was state-of-the-art artillery on the battlefield, it's, it's, like, it's not like today where a cannon is pretty well regulated, you know, the old school cannon is regulated to the annals of history. At the time, that was cutting-edge military artillery. If you wanted something bigger than that, you needed a boat to move it. Exactly. And then it was just a bigger cannon. Yep. So we've, we've really changed kind of the, the, the way this is set up. And we have kind of the Civil War to thank for that. The Civil War is really the last place in the United States where you see state militias taking part in a live military action, uh, kind of within the confines of the U.S. And so you'll hear these funky names when you read about these battles or you watch a documentary, and they talk about like the 84th New York fighting in these places. Well, that was a militia. And then you had, on the other side of that, federal troops. So they usually had a slightly different uniform. They had a slightly different chain of command. And at the end of the Civil War, they started phasing this. I don't want to say they phased it out, but they wanted to get away with it because the feds were a little gun-shy about it. Not to Probably especially in the reconstruction of the South. Yeah. Well, they re- might be really kind of shitting a brick over that. Well, Reconstruction of the South was a big issue because you still had a lot of these state militias. And I'm from Louisiana, and there's a place called Red River, Louisiana. <clears throat> and in Red River, they won the Civil War. Okay. Because the, the Red River was is a tributary of the Mississippi, and so the federal troops controlled the Mississippi, uh, managed to gain control of the, Miss- the lower part of the Mississippi, so they had... Um, some water navigation. <coughs> Excuse me. And they went up to secure the Red River, and the boys up on the Red River kicked them out. Not just, like, you know, go away. They murdered these people. Okay. And so during Reconstruction, they had, uh, there was an army captain, a former federal army captain went in there, 
and it didn't end well for him. He wound up losing both arms and one of his legs in a gunfight. So, yeah, because there were people in the South that just said, "I don't care if uh, Jeff Davis says it's over; it's not over till it's over, and we don't think it's over yet." Exactly, and this leads to some legislation that Congress moves at a snail's pace unless it's absolutely something that is going to get money in their pocket right away. But it took them until 1902 to really get discussion going on how to reorganize the militias. And this is where a lot of people have heard of this. You either hear it referred to as the Dick Bill or the Efficiency of Militia Act. And this was where the militias were re formatted as the National Guard, and that's where we we get those structures from. And there's been several amendments to that since. We have the National Guard Defense Act of uh, of 1916. It was amended in 1933. We also have a couple of others that were uh, there was a it's actually a pro, kind of a protectionary act that was done in 1974 where the reserves are all considered part of the active military. But when they created the reserves in the guard and then they put them under the command structure of the the regular army, the regular Navy, et cetera, basically with two divisions. But at the top, you've got the regular forces in control mm-hmm. subject to the president, subject to the Congress, that the, the, the militia itself kind of just the traditional concept kind of faded away, but that doesn't mean that it was by law done away with. It just kind of ebbed out into history, correct? Yes, and speaking of command structure, there are no generals in the National Guard. So make sure you have control. Don't give them a general officer, and they can never really have control of themselves. Exactly. So in, uh, in Washington State, we fall under the 40th Infantry Division, and so that controls part of Oregon, Washington, California. So there's a brigadier general in charge of that, but he is a member of the United States Army. He's not a member of the Army National Guard. So he has overall control of the forces in Washington State, California, and these other places, but there's no check on him. I got you. (laughs) So while our founders uh, wanted to make sure the militia was strong to avoid a standing army, the government's version of the militia today is under the subjugation of the standing army. Exactly. And so, wow, those are big words. I don't know where I got them. <laughs> <laughs> so when we look at uh, the constitutional concept of it, you, you've you talked in the past about this, and I, I've been in agreement with it, that the militia should be controlled at a much lower level. And... For me, I like the idea of having the sheriff in charge of what would essentially amount to a reserve group of sheriff's deputies. So the sheriff would get all these guys, and we'll we'll talk about implementation in a minute, but he gets these guys together, and they serve not only as reserve sheriff's deputies, but they're part... uh, Have you heard of CERT, Community Emergency? Okay. So they're, they're part CERT team, part search and rescue, so that they've got all these multi-roles that they can go through. So it's not just sandbagging. It's not just going out and looking for the kid that got scared and ran off into the woods. It's also being able to fight brush fires. It's being able to respond to a tornado. It's being able to respond to a hurricane or riots. 
It's a multi it's almost like all enemies, foreign and domestic, whether man or, or natural made. Exactly. What a shock! What an what an amazing concept! I, uh, yeah, sounds brand new. Never heard it before. Yeah, I know. It's it's just wicked awesome, isn't it? <laughs> so I mean, it's it's no secret that we we don't have the militia of the past. I mean, I I am the of the belief that I'll take the word of Thomas Jefferson, who said, "Who are the militia?" I'll tell you, sir, they are the whole of the people over any modern, uh, you know, politician or bureaucrat. But the concept of the original militia, the organizational structure, the local command layer, the uh, ability to call up the militia, these things are kind of gone. I mean, you could say they're replaced with the National Guard and Reserve, but as you just mentioned, it doesn't work that way. There's, there's nobody in Tarrant County that can call up the Texas National Guard, right? I mean, the governor can, but nobody at the county level can say, hey, we're not waiting on them. We need this now. Yeah, there's, there's no command structure on the roster. So what what would be the optimal way to enable the reconstitution of the state militias, to bring them back? Okay, so uh, each person, if you want to pursue this, I've got kind of a general outline. It's uh, two parts right now. I'm working on part three of it up on, my, up on the, the Gunrunner podcast. And it's under militia initiative. You scroll all the way to the bottom, you can see kind of the outline. But each state has a slightly different uh, code. And our code here in Washington State is the Revised Code of Washington. So I've gone through, and it, there's a lot of stuff there. And you have to be kind of part lawyer, part historian to understand the context of some of this stuff. And you've got to nitpick this and that. But the initiative for your state would go out and... You'd put the proposed initiative on the front cover, and on the back cover, you'd have an application. And the application is going to be kind of the the same thing that you'd fill out if you were applying for a reserve sheriff's deputy position. So they got all the information to do a background check on you. They've got your employment history, where you're currently employed. And this is important because if you're at work, they want to be, have the contact information to get a hold of you there, especially if something like just what just happened down in um, West Texas happens, where you need everybody in the area to get in there. Because you may, if you live right across the street from the plant, you're going to be directly affected by that incident. But if you're not, you're on the periphery, you've got the ability to respond. So you can call everybody up. The application gets processed, and this is, the volunteer aspect of this. This is a volunteer-driven initiative front to back. So you're going to have volunteers that do the screening process. Reserve police officers, retired police officers, people that have an investigative background that are going to go in and look at the people who are applying for this. And then you'll have a screening board, and that screening board will be made up of retired military, the the head of the, the board, probably somebody that was like an 06 because uh, regardless of branch of military, once you've made 06, they pretty much screened out all the idiots at that point. Yeah, there's not a lot of dumb colonels out there. There there aren't. And I think that that's a pretty decent level because there's a lot of them running around. I think we've got four or five here in my area that are retired 06s. I uh, have a couple of E7 E8s because, again, you're talking about somebody that's been in the military for quite a while, they're going to have really great BS radar. And then you have a couple of retired law enforcement officers that have done 15 to 20 years on the job, and they know what they're looking for in somebody who's going to be 
talking to the public, dealing with the public, processing arrests, stuff like that. So, so, so how is because right now? I mean, if you want to be a, a reserve sheriff's deputy in in Tarrant County, uh, there's a program to do that. I've been talked to about doing it. I don't think I will because the uh, the academy time yeah. you have to do it's almost a year and it's four or five nights a week, and that just I don't know that I have the time at, at, at my age and my station in life to dedicate to that. So how does if there's that much, um, let's say, uh, qualification required? How does this differ from a program and you know of a reserve sheriff officer, a reserve uh, police department officer? It's going to be the the role. So you're going to work with your sheriff's department. You're, you're going to be ultimately beholden to the sheriff's deputy or to the sheriff rather, but you're going to also support your local police department. So all the departments that fall under that county's jurisdiction, you're going to go do ride-alongs with them. So you'll go do two-hour or a 10-hour shift once a week. Maybe uh, every two weeks you'll do a 10-hour shift with them. So you might have a 20-hour commitment to these guys every month. That way you're staying sharp. You're, uh, you know the local law enforcement officers. You're... You're knowing the county, you know the people that are causing problems. This way, if there is an incident, so uh, the big thing around here is earthquakes and tsunamis. And so if we have a major earthquake, we have a tsunami, and you have to deal with the public one-on-one, you know who the troublemakers are. You know who the people that are in the community that are going to actually be helping you and the people that are going to be hindering you. You've got eyes on them already. You've got the arrest authority but more so, you also have the ability to go out and one of the big problems we have here in the county is we're running out of money for maintaining a lot of the county roads. And when I talk about a county road, I'm not talking about the, the hardball road. We have a lot of forestry roads here. But it costs money to put a sheriff's deputy on the trail with a convict crew to maintain that road. So let's say you put four or five militia guys in a van, you go out with them, so you yeah, you've got the personnel, you've got eyes on them, but you don't have the same expense that you do with the sheriff's deputy. So you're saving a little bit of money there uh, for search and rescue. You've got an actual standard. I've commanded ground team search and rescue. I did that before I enlisted in the Marine Corps, and it was it was awful. The, the civilian search and rescue team that I dealt with, there were only four people beside me that were actually qualified to go out in the field. There were no training standards. There were no physical fitness standards. And we got in trouble one time, and it was bad. Uh, They had to cut one of the gates to get in to get one of the guys out because we could not physically move him. Mm. And I'm I'm, I'm six foot. At the time, I was about 235. I've always been a big guy. And it was a task for me to get him up the hill, just having him draped over my shoulder. So by maintaining a physical fitness standard and and doing these other things, we're increasing the flexibility of it. But as far as being different from a reserve deputy, you're going to have a more robust role. And at the same time, we we look at deputies, uh, the sheriff's department. And this is one of the things I've I've gotten on this where people kind of get worried is, is this taking jobs away from police officers? And it's not because the we need to have full-time cops. We absolutely have to, especially when you live in a city. I think we've got a population about 25,000 here. And when you've got that many people, you absolutely have to have a full-time law enforcement. This is part-time. This is supplementary. 
but you also get additional capabilities. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you got all the kinks worked out here, because I'm telling you, I, I look at that and I think about the the reserve officer programs I know that are in place, and you're getting very close to that. And I think to grant that authority to an individual, most of these uh, departments have that level of uh, requirement in there with academy time and things like that before that kind of authority can be granted, even under the supervision of another officer. Well, so I don't mean to—I don't mean to, you know, rain on a parade or nothing. But it, it, what you're what you're telling me sounds kind of exclusionary. Well, when we—and it, 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 it is to a degree—we want to make sure that. And this is where the the other aspect of it comes in. We talk about training and getting these people spun up. So one of the things that absolutely drove me crazy was having to travel all over the state to get training for search and rescue and all these things. And it is expensive having to go uh, all the way up north to a town called Twisp for one exercise. I had to drive out to Yakima four or five times from where I'm at, and that's a four-hour drive. And this is just for a four-hour training class. On this, on uh, one was high angle rescue, one was steep earth rescue, and then there was uh, a confined space class that I took. And it it gets expensive, especially when you're doing it on your own. Building in the the ability to do training on a local level is a huge thing, so that you have people that can train not just to the basic level, but can also train to the advanced level. And this is also where you get into the definition of the organized militia and the or- unorganized militia. Because the unorganized militia, they're the average Joe that's walking around that maybe has never served on active duty, has maybe, you know, they, they've talked to police officers, they know a police officer, but when the emergency comes, they're one of the people that's least affected. So your organized militia is also trained to go in and organize these people. So you're organizing triage teams. You're organizing sandbag teams. You're making sure you've got people that maybe, you know, are, they've had their house ruined or something like that. They don't have anything to do on site, but they can go help clear a road. They can help clear trees. Yeah. And that's where you get the, the biggest force multiplier with the, the militia is being able to organize the unorganized militia. And the, the idea of being able to train people, organize them, and lead them is part of the basic uh, non-commissioned officer concept that we get from the, the Army and the Marine Corps. Because you've got these <clears throat> platoon, squad, uh, detachment-level leaders that are capable of getting a concept across, getting people organized, and making something happen. Yeah, that, that, that's kind of leaning more toward the way that I would see this. Like, I wouldn't really, I don't know. I mean, this is your initiative, so I think, and we need plenty of initiatives to see what actually gets traction because we need to do this one way or another. But the type of person you're describing to me seems more like the person that you would say is a, a senior NCO or officer of the militia uh, at the local level rather than every uh, you know active member or even well-trained member of the militia. And it seems a natural dovetail there then would be something like, you know, you were talking about the level of person that would screen like an 06 or above, uh, but having like these command structures be people that have already completed uh, regional academy, reserve officer training, things like that, that already have that connection, but have those people be highly involved with the localized training for the individual that isn't doing ride-alongs with police officers. Because I can also tell you this. 
you have 30 or 40 people wanting to show up and ride along two shifts a month with the Tarrant County Sheriff's Department, they're going to see that more as a pain in the ass than an opportunity. Yeah, there, there is that. But, again, you're looking at a very small percentage of the population. When Part of the implementation that I have written into the initiative is that the first that there's a 10-year phase in for it. And that sounds really long until you look at what you're looking at building into it, the, the amount sure. of institutional knowledge that you're trying to gain. So for the first four years, it's only infantry, infantry and military police from the Army and the Marine Corps. So you've got a base of training that everybody can draw from. There's t- uh, common terminology. There, there's, you know, you got the whole war buddy thing where guys can talk and relate to each other and, and build up this esprit de corps before they start going out. And that's where you're going to develop a lot of this NCO leadership for the local level. And then you slowly start phasing everybody else in. And at uh, year 10, you bring in everything so that you've got all the all the different branches included and including civilians. And the, the, the hardest hitching point that I, I wrote in was uh, including females, because that's one of the hardest things you do when you're dealing with military training. You look at what the Air Force has gone through with it, and these guys are professionals. They do it every day. And they've got, I think, five guys down at Lackland. It's Lackland or Kirkland, I get the two confused, down in Texas that are under uh, prosecution right now for sexual misconduct with female recruits. So that that's a delicate road. Just keep in mind they may be guilty. I, I, not, you know, they may or may not, but I mean, <laughs> I, I've seen abuses of that on both sides. Yes, I, I have the too. abusive accusation that's that's groundless, and the abusive behavior that is uh, deserving of of uh, of punishment. I, I've seen both sides of it very clearly, and, and that's not the problem, really, because when it's very clear, you know what to do. It's the gray orb in the middle where you're not sure who's telling the truth where it gets to be really really messy yeah and writing you know writing a piece of proposed legislation where you're dealing with more civilians and you're dealing with veterans and guys from the military that gets a little fuzzy and who has jurisdiction you know who 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 prosecutes this who does the investigation and I, I kind of pitched that over to the state. So you have the sheriff that's in charge of the militia. So the sheriff had, there's an emergency on the county level. The sheriff can deal with some of it, but let's say it's something on the scale of the LA riots or Katrina. That's out of the hands of most sheriffs, whether you live in a large county, a large parish. You call the governor up and the governor has to send people in and something happens with somebody that's from another group. Uh, the state patrol, the, the the lead law enforcement agency for the state having the investigative authority to go into, look at what happened and make sure that that uh, that incident is being dealt with fairly, I think is the best way to put it. Yeah, so like who would be in charge at the state level? Then the governor is the commander of the, the, the combined state militia? Uh, either the governor or you could the governor or the the uh, attorney general one of the two i i don't uh the militia act of 1916 both the efficiency of militia act and the national guard defense act of 1916 both stipulate that the governor is the commander in chief but when you look at different states 
they have it either assigned to the governor or they have it assigned to the uh, the attorney general's office. So, so the attorney general could effectively act like the secretary of defense under the president. Exactly. And the other problem with some of the some of these things, both the uh, Efficiency and Militia Act and the National Guard Defense Act use some antiquated terms that we don't use anymore, such as Secretary of War. And there hasn't been a Secretary of War since 1954, so you get into some of that where it's like, okay, so does that automatically default to the president, or does that automatically default to the Secretary of Defense? Because it's nobody, nobody clarified that. And this is the other thing when we talk about change of command, and we talk about the National Guard as it is under U.S. Section 10E, the U.S. Code 10E. The president has the authority to federalize troops, essentially whenever he wants, which is kind of an issue. And we look at, again, Katrina, Louisiana State National Guard was in Baghdad. Yeah. That, that, was, that was outstanding prior placement. That was great staging of troops. Um, <laughs> and that's the other thing that comes into this when we talk about federalization and removing of people from these areas. If... We have these people that are organic to the site. Yeah, you're gonna, you might have a reserve unit that's deployed. You might have these other people that are deployed. But these are people that live in the community. These are people that own businesses there. They work for people that are there. So you've got a, a tighter relationship. You're going to have less propensity for abuse of power. At least I would hope no, no so. No doubt. I mean, I, I get that. I mean, I look at things like the... Uh the, the militia in Missouri and the way they're doing things. So to give you kind of a contrast to, to something that's active and ongoing, uh, these guys, what they do, you want to join, you put in an application. It's pretty simple. There is the basic stuff. Where do you live? What's your background? Do you have military service? Do you have a criminal record? And then the background check is a basic criminal background check that the member that's applying pays for themselves, and it's conducted by the state police department. It's no different than if I was hiring you to work in my warehouse, and I wanted to know if you had a criminal record. I could order it and pay for it in this case, you know, so the militia doesn't have to pay for it. The individual applying pays for it. It's like yeah. 30 bucks. So you know the guy's clean. You know he doesn't have any felonies or violent misdemeanors or any outstanding warrants or anything like that. Because if he does, when he runs his home check, they'll probably come get him. Uh <laughs> Then he's in. They conduct all their own training. They 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 do try to keep as tight a relationship as they can with their local county sheriff's department. It's one department you know may like them, the other department may not like the idea, depending on where they're located. But if there's a problem, uh, they see themselves as civilians. Mm -hmm. Uh, that have organized the militia constitutionally, and as long as there's nothing prohibiting them legally from showing up, they show up and they go into action, and, and they do whatever needs to be done. And when the, the you know when the actual responders get there, if they're told stand down, they stand down. If they're told go over here, they go over here. If they're told we need you to do this, they do this. If they're told hey we need you to bring us some stuff, they if we have if they have it, they bring it. And I mean that's more autonomous local control than something that's so heavily organized it's almost you know i don't know like like where you're going with it where you're being very very exclusionary it seems because the entire point of the militia was everybody that was in the town or the township or the county uh was pretty much in unless otherwise put out well in it, fact we're expected to be in yeah they were it was almost it was i would call it almost compulsory there were some laws even at one time that said but no one went around and goes where's your gun Where's your ammo? You don't have it. You're going to jail. It wasn't like that, but it was such an expectation that it was almost compulsory. 
and but here's the thing when we look at the way that people perceive authority today they want to know what did you go through to get this what's what's your background you know did you get this checked off did you have that checked off and if you look at uh the application for Washington State Trooper is 53 pages long and I think the reserve sheriff's application here is 12 pages long and that's just the reserve they want to make sure that they're screening out the people that might be you know somebody that less than worthy you're putting a badge on somebody especially in in that capacity See, I'm wondering if that's that that just doesn't sound like the militia to me you're back to uh, a reserve officer and because and, I don't let, let's say that let's say you're my next door neighbor and let's say uh, here comes a truck down the road, a couple guys jump out of it, and they're going to try to burn your house down. I don't need a badge to intervene. Oh, absolutely not. No. Right? And, and I don't need a badge to have two or three people help me intervene. No. Um, and I don't need to arrest you if you are trying to maim, kill, injure others um, in almost every place in this country. I have a right even to lethal force at that point. So... Again, it just seems like what you're describing is the Reserve Officer Corps. And the thing I'm trying to address... Right? I don't mean to be argumentative. Oh, no, I mean, oh, no just, absolutely that's not. That's legitimate, you know, where, where it seems like all of this stuff, you might as well, I mean, it, I just don't see any law enforcement organization on, on planet Earth uh, giving a person known as a militia member arrest authority unless that person just also happens to be a Reserve Officer. In fact, I would say in a lot of states it would be unconstitutional to do so, well, except under like a posse situation. Exactly, and, and a posse is not designed to work. A posse is you, you, you. Let's go. Exactly. Right now, you're a deputy, and you're, you're under my direct supervision. Yeah, and the, the issue comes up of you know who is liable in these situations, and that's that's what I'm trying to address with the organization is making sure that the liability there is addressed because. If you're injured or something happens while you're out on the job, while you're while you're assisting, who's responsible for that? Uh, if you're out sandbagging or uh, and you're using a piece of lift equipment and something falls on you, crushes your leg, you were trying to help the community. All of a sudden, you're SOL. Sure. And it, the 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 problem is we live in a country, unfortunately, where there's a lot of lawyers, and I know a couple of good lawyers. I know I, Glenn Tate. I know Glenn, and he's a good guy. He's a lawyer, yeah. and unfortunately, we've got a lot of these guys that are really predatory. Um, uh, I'm not going to name any names. Again, though, I'm going to go right back, and I know you think I'm picking on you, but you're just you're going down a road that says, by the time you do this, you yeah. might as well be a reserve officer. So it's almost like you're calling the militia the reserve officer corps. And I don't mean, you know, commissioned officer. Yes, I mean, I, I reserve law enforcement officer, whether it's a local law enforcement uh, program or a sheriff's department, and those things exist. They all have different time commitments. One place might be eight hours a month with a with a, a week a year. Uh, other places might be uh, four shifts a month. It, it's 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 very and it is very. I mean, the only thing you can really draw it back to the militias. It's very much locally controlled. And I just don't know how, once you are going through all this application and then being granted authority of the state, 
that you're anywhere else but right back to that that blueprint. The other, you know, the other thing is that you you fall under the county, but you can move to a different county. So again, we talk about the response. Yeah. So being able to respond to different counties, whereas a sheriff's deputy stay there, and local law stay there, you move around. You have that that freedom of movement during a time of emergency, and that's you know you're still within that that platform. But yeah, absolutely. This this is more that reserve officer corps, but the the thing is you're freeing up law enforcement because they're not committed to doing a lot of these things that like we talked before earlier about running call it a chain gang for all intents and purposes. You're freeing them up to actually uh make sure hospitals are free. So th- if they've got uh personnel that they need to be running around the streets, you put a couple of guys at the hospital, they maintain order there. And there's nobody questioning it in that time of emergency, people look for signs of stability when things go wrong, which is why you had uh, NYPD officers running around in New Orleans after Katrina conducting arrests because people Correct. see the badge and it's like, oh, OK, that's a sign of authority. That person's in charge. That that person has been vested with this power, whatever it may be, even though this is not their jurisdiction, they have no concept of what the laws are. And they're going to enforce their state's laws on us, which, you know, that might be a little jacked up. But, um, you know, what's in the past? Is no, that is the problem. That's that's the entire point of the need for more local control. Mm-hmm. Um, I just don't I, I've never in my life thought of a militia member as someone with the authority of arrest. And I don't know that there's much of a historical precedent for that. I mean, even a posse. A member of a posse does not conduct an arrest. A member of a posse assists the sheriff, and the sheriff conducts the arrest. Yeah, and you can you could kind of see it that way, but in an emergency, do you really want to have somebody running around? Hey, hey, anybody seen a cop? Anybody seen a cop? No. <laughs> That's, again, I, I don't know. I just think you've got some lines to connect here. I, I like where you're going, but I think that, um, I think you've drawn up the Reserve Officer Corps with like some kind of a national initiative to increase it. I, it. It doesn't, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be a jerk, it just doesn't sound anything like a militia to me. And you see, that's, that's where I came to it because, I, again, I'm making sure I'm addressing a lot of these things that I've been getting from police officers because I, sure. I put like four or five versions of this up there. And police yeah. officers have been, well, you know, you're taking away our jobs. You're, you're making this a free thing. And I'm, I'm thinking, no, I'm not making it a free thing because that's what Camden, New Jersey did. Yeah. Um, this is to help you guys out. This is, this is a backup for you. And then you get people that are, well, you know, you've got these guys operating out there. Who's granting them authority? You know, yeah. what's, well, you know, the Second Amendment grants them authority. Well, the Second Amendment, yeah, you could argue that, but, you know, is somebody really going to listen to somebody that's not standing out there with, under the auspices of a sheriff's department or a state? And yeah, th- there's, there's an application process, and I, I see it as something that's essential because uh, I get this from people all the time. They, they talk about, uh, like first responders and the Good Samaritan initiatives. And the Good Samaritan initiatives are great things. But when you start talking about uh, giving CPR to somebody or, or doing these other things, you're liable 
well, uh, I'm an EMT. My EMT certification lapsed. I'm also a, 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 a combat lifesaver. But if I go and render aid to somebody and that person dies, I'm liable for that. And there's, and the question starts getting asked, well, who gave you the authority to do this? Who trained you to do this? And it leads, it leads back to that whole liability thing. And that's, I'm trying to protect the person that wants to come out and wants to serve the community by giving them, kind of, I don't want to say an umbrella or a jacket, <laughs> because it gets ugly. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had a long drawn out, uh, court, uh, you know, a lawsuit or anything, but man, those get expensive. And especially when you start talking about life and limb, uh, you had Masada Ayuban a while yeah. back and mass can tell you story after story after story of guys that have gone out, done the right thing, acted in self-defense and have just had their asses handed to them. Uh, there's one uh, guy in Michigan was getting stomped to death by five guys shot and killed one of them. And he has uh, spent well over a million dollars in his legal defense. And it's, it's stuff like that that makes me sit back and go, okay, how do I protect this person that is actually... Well, see, here's my thing. I, you call it militia, you call it a reserve officer. Yeah. You end up in that same situation, especially off-duty, right? Exactly. Um, and you're facing the same legal ramifications that you are. I mean, just let me tell you where I'm coming from. If I want to form a militia in, in Tarrant County, Texas... I don't need anybody's permission whatsoever to do so. It's legal, and it is constitutional. And you are in Texas. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you you show me someone who's been arrested for forming a militia, not for planning to blow something up because there's some whack job that neither one of us are talking about, but someone that just said, we are a militia, and somebody showed up and took them away because they did it. Yeah. And it, and if, if it was possible, it would have happened. Yes. It, I'm not saying there ain't people that don't want to do it, but there's – there's absolutely no legal leg to stand on in any of the 50 states that say, yet, that say you can't do this, right? Um, I also look at it this way. You, like you, I, I'm prior service. So for the rest of my life, I'm part of what's known as individual ready reserve. And when I was in during Desert Storm, first Gulf War, right, um, I remember guys that were 63, 64 years old, little mustaches, little pot bellies, hadn't been in the military for 20 years, but they were part of I don't remember the missile system that they were that they ran you know 20 years ago. Patriots were brand new. That's what they were using to knock down the scuds. No one really had. There was not enough people to run them. So these guys, 20 years after they got out in their 60s, were recalled. So as far as I'm concerned, even by the definition that the people that are wrong and say it's you know only official military and National Guard and Reserve, then. Every single person that's ever served in the military that was discharged under anything other than, you know, dis any that would be subject to recall, right? So dishonorable discharge, that's a tiny yeah. fraction. It's not the number that, the you know, some of the pinko media would want you to believe. It's a very, very tiny number. Well, they, Every they, single one of those persons is in even the modern militia according to the most anti-gun, anti-militia stance because they're subject to recall and they have prior service. Yeah. And the, the the number you're talking about, they also include bad conduct discharges in that. Yeah, they lump that in. So yeah. anybody that has a, a reenlistment code other than uh, RE1, they they throw in there. So sure, sure. But Jack, I'm right there with you. Again, I'm. I I, would, I like your idea. I just think somebody's doing it already. Uh, I just think it is reserve officers. It is, but again, I I'd like to see it expanded so that they have a more robust role. 
especially when it comes to this emergency where we need to mobilize the people. And the people are just kind of left as the walking wounded. Uh, when I went through incident commander training for uh, uh, DEM, they talk about make, uh, during a mass casualty incident, you make sure that the walking wounded have a job to do because it relieves stress. It gives them an, an objective. That's important to do, but you don't see it a whole lot. And it's not a real organized manner. You don't have one guy. You might have somebody that points and says, oh, go do that. But there's no follow-on to it. There's no organization of it. And that, to me, is a major component of what the militia is. It's organizing the people into a response so that we can go out and and make sure these things are getting done. And as far as, uh, you know, the organization, tables of organization and equipment, that would fall to the sheriff's department. And again, yeah, it, you, you t- I'm talking more closely about a reserve officer corps, but you, you get some of these guys that, um, I don't know if you saw that, uh, I think it was militia ri- American Militia Rising, I think it was. It was something that was on Discovery Channel a while back, and you had all these guys running around, they're, they're talking about, they're, they're pseudo-survivalists, yeah, but you, you watch that and you just shake your head, going, "Really? I, I have never seen anybody handle a weapon that badly before. I have never seen somebody flag fifteen people in in four seconds like that with, with a with a loaded rifle." Thank you. I feel so much better now. Um, yeah, it's of course, even I mean, if you, that, you you know law enforcement training isn't guarantee isn't a guarantee oh, that no, won't happen. Not. I posted the guy. He was a I think he was a U.S. marshal. In uh, New York, with his EOTech on his on his weapon, in an actual not a drill, an actual uh, uh, active shooter situation with his EOTech on backwards. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> but and this is and, and I'm looking at the America's Militia rising right now, and they got a guy running a drill. Where he's got the guy on the ground. He's bending over, and he's got a giant plumber crack out the back. So yeah, that's not the image I'm looking for. No, and it's and any time you hear the word militia used derogatorily, that's the image that pops into my head. And that's the image that a lot of Americans have of what it is, thanks to the Southern Poverty Law Center. And unfortunately, because of the spin that some of these groups have had, there's a need to kind of get around that. And don't get me wrong, I, I, the three-color BDU is great, Um ACUs, not a big fan of the color scheme, just because I, I don't know the last time anybody was in a combat engagement in a furniture store. But <laughs> that is it is a horrible camouflage scheme. It, it really is. Um, but running around in the woods dressed like that, just it, it puts a bad taste in people's mouths because – the, the, you show up to do something. Uh, down in Arizona, they have a, a bunch of these groups that go around and do these patrols for illegal border crossers. And the Minutemen. Yeah, the Minutemen. And there's a couple of the groups that are extraordinarily well organized. They do a very, they do a great job. And a bunch of them actually have, uh, reserve police officers that are a part of them. But you get a couple of these groups, especially the ones that are willing to be shown on TV, and they run around and it's like, um, you got a guy in a ghillie suit over there. You got a guy in three color uh, woodland camis over here. You got chocolate chip cookie desert over here. So you guys just throw on whatever is you had laying around. There's there, there doesn't appear to be any level of organization or coordination. And again, 
that's one of those things that I want to make sure that they have standard uniforms, that people, when they see them, they recognize and go, oh, so you're a member of, you know, the uh, Jefferson Parish Militia, or you're a member of the Thurston County Militia. And it's like, oh, okay, very well. I, I understand that that's what that uniform means. That's what that signifies to me. And, it, yeah, and if I know where you're going there. I just, again, I just think you're back to these are, you might as well call these reserve sheriff's deputies. And again, uh, we talked about the militia and how the, the term that better suits what you would think of is kind of the, the posse because, you know, these are the guys you call up when something bad has happened. The terminology changes over time. And unfortunately, like I said, we live in a, a land of lawyers. And yeah, it's, I just I don't want to see anybody exploited any more than is absolutely necessary. I think that there's some legal exploitation that's kind of uh, part and parcel to being a, a concealed carry holder and and those things. Uh, you ever heard the term that uh, behind every bullet is a lawyer? <laughs> no, but that makes perfect sense. Yeah. So so where are you taking this to? How how can people learn more, get involved with it, um, maybe help you evolve it or get it some traction? Um, I have a a page up on uh, the Gunrunner podcast. It's called the Militia Initiative. Feel free to go in there, and there's a probably about an 800 word essay that is on the top, and then as you get towards the bottom, there's some of the uh, setup for the implementation, the, the table of organization, the authority, you know, how it would be put together. And again, yeah, it, it absolutely is set up, as you said, like a, uh, a reserve officer corps. So it's got the, the state legislature, the governor and all that. And if you have any comments, you can put them on there or you can send them to uh, questions at the gunrunnerpodcast.com. And if you want, I've got a contact page, you can contact me directly through that. Well, Ryan, I appreciate you being with us today. And, uh, again, uh, you've got a, a website uh, in addition to the initiative there where you do your own show, thegunrunnerpodcast.com. I recommend people get over there and uh, give you a listen to. And I appreciate you being with us today. Thanks, Jack. All right, folks. And that, with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Ryan Rokan, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for today.